G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A new biography is on the market now. It's just been released and it may well capture your imagination. It's called Don't Tell Me It Can't Be Done and explores the life journey of Ray Barnett, the founder of the African Children's Choir. In Uganda, in the aftermath of the Idi Amin regime, which left thousands of African children orphaned, it was then that Ray Barnett was inspired by one little boy's singing. And this led to Music for Life, the home of the African Children's Choir. Ray Barnett, the Irish-born minister and humanitarian, had many challenges facing him in his early life, including loss, abuse, rejection, and an undiagnosed learning disability. Well, it's our privilege to have the opportunity to talk to Ray Barnett about his story. He's on the line with us today from Ireland. Ray Barnett, welcome along to 2020. Thank you. Ray, congratulations on the release of your book. And let me start by just asking you about your visits to Australia because the African Children's Choir has toured Australia. You've been here a number of times. Yes, that's that's right. That's correct. I know the I I've been there and the choir has been there and uh it seems um groups some of the choir keep going there and we've appreciated the tremendous support from the uh, Australian people. Let's come back to the beginning of your story, which takes us back to your childhood, and we might be giving your age away here, but your story starts from childhood during wartime. We're talking about the Second World War. That's right. Uh, I I was a child um, in the the Second World War, and uh, as a matter of, I've just turned 83 years old, so there you go with my age. But yes, I, I I I I did grow up in the war and being a child and hearing serious radio broadcasts, I I remember a lot about it. And how do you describe the circumstances as you were a child growing up Second World War? Uh, you're exposed to a lot of things. Yes, that's right. Well, uh, there was an um number of things that happened. I, I grew up with the name of Raymond Ross and didn't realize I had been, um, uh, uh, this was not my real parents or my birth parents. And uh, there was little things that kept happening that made me question it. But, uh, um, you know, life went on and, uh, of course, at, at that period of time, I, I didn't I didn't know the truth, but uh, some you know amazing things happened at that time, like uh, the 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 soldiers and everybody in Northern Ireland at that time, the Americans, they're very kind and threw parties for children, and uh, um, I had received very good impressions 
at at that time. But uh, uh, my, my that was the period when I was going to school, and of course, nothing was known. Absolutely nothing was known about dyslexia, and um, I had a difficult time. But in the back of my mind, I wondered why. Um, they couldn't understand when it comes to men- mental arithmetic. I was the best in the class. That didn't seem to count. And even as a child, I wondered about that. And then when I became 11 years old, I went to a different school. And uh, uh, one lady in that school changed my life forever. She was her homeroom teacher and her music teacher. And when I was first put up, to sing in the choir, I fainted. And uh, she was so kind to me, I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. And she said, Ray, Raymond, she called me then, you you don't have to come to choir. You can stay in the home room and read a book if you want. And I did that. And one day she came in and uh, I could feel this presence over me. And then it was Miss Lee, that was her name. She said, Raymond, you hate this place. Everybody's gone. It was the last period of the day, and you're sitting here reading. And then she reached over and took the book and looked at it. She said, you know, I know this book. Can you tell me what you've read? So I could see she was absolutely amazed that I could read back verbatim everything I had read. And she said, look... um, there's something wrong here because, uh, and, and of course, I, I, I knew as a child what it was. She had got reports that, you know, I wasn't good in school and couldn't uh, do the work. And uh, suddenly she's discovering that I read a book and I knew everything about it. And uh, then she said, you know what? Uh, my dad's a retired teacher and I don't live too far. How would you like to come to our house after school and see if we can help you? That became a lifelong friendship, and she changed my life forever. I imagine that back in those days, not a lot was known about dyslexia, which is what you're nothing, describing. Nothing was known. Just probably in certain high academic circles, something was known, but... Uh, uh, certainly not like it is today. My goodness, if you've got uh, every, everybody in school today, every mom's hoping their child is dyslexic so that they get special help with a special teacher. <laughs> well, you had your experience of loss. There's even stories of abuse and rejection in there. And we did mention that you found out that the family that you thought were your family were not your family. I wonder if you can no, take us into a little bit of depth there. Yes, well, well, well I can. Uh, at, a, at a certain point, uh, um, there was people who were relatives. And, of course, I, I didn't know, but everybody in the street where I lived, they knew about who I was, but I, I didn't. And uh, then um, my mother, that's the lady who raised me and she loved me, Levina Ross, uh, she was called to um, a dying aunt uh, who wanted to see her and she told her, she said, Raymond, 
must be told who he is. And it was then that my mother couldn't do that. And uh, an older brother, he said he would do it. So he talked to me and told me she was heartbroken that she had to tell you. But it was her aunt's dying wish. And uh, I'm telling you that your mother was killed in the London Blitz. Well, um, that wasn't quite the story. But for that period of time, it ended it. But by the time I was 14 years old, at that time you left school and went to work, uh, I needed my birth certificate and went along to the registry where I lived, and they had no recommendation, they had no knowledge of a Raymond Ross being born on that day. Then the truth came out, and uh, um, then that's why. When I finally got the certificate, my name became Barnett, and that's when uh, that's when uh, you know more things started. I began to ask questions, and oddly enough, uh, I I I had become a Christian during that period, and uh, I worked in a dry cleaning plant in the laundry, and uh, um, I, I was sorting out different dry cleaning, and I came upon a dress, and I called this, you know, God's guidance, and I thought, this, can you imagine as a teenager uh, looking at a dress and saying this dress is very interesting, and uh, when I looked at it, I decided to go to the card file and find out who it belonged to, and the address was Barnett, Barnett at Comore Point, Londonderry. Well, I knew that's where my mother had lived, and I thought, she's not dead, this is her dress. And that, that began a lifetime journey. Uh, first of all, I, I went and uh, took the train to London, Derek told nobody, walked all the way, which was a few miles to uh, where my mother had lived, and knocked on the, the door, and an elderly lady came, she was blind, and I thought this might be my grandmother. However, I didn't want to offend anybody, and I just said I was in Londonderry, and uh, my mother, Lavina Ross, uh, knew her daughter um, uh, before the war, and I was just wondering if there was any information about her, and that's how I discovered my mother was still alive and living in London. And did you get the reason why you were given up as a child? Well, not, not, um, not really. Uh, um, I, w- I was just uh, basically uh, uh, given up, and I was never given any reason at that period uh, of time. Now, as time went by... I also discovered that I had a sister uh, who was older than I was, and that began a quest to search for her, and through a lot of effort, I I found a sister. She somehow knew that she had a younger brother, but had no way of... She told me she almost prayed that someday her brother would come and find her, and that's exactly what happened. It's a long story, but uh, uh, an amazing story. We're talking with Ray Barnett, 
whose story is recorded in his new book called Don't Tell Me It Can't Be Done. We'll return to our conversation in just a short while. We're talking with Ray Barnett, the Irish-born minister and humanitarian who was the founder of the African Children's Choir. His new book is called Don't Tell Me It Can't Be Done. Ray, we were talking about your conversion to Christianity, your decision to follow Christ as a 14-year-old. That was a turning point for you in such an incredible way because it set you on a new trajectory for your future. It changed my life forever. And uh, uh, what happened, uh, um, where I worked in a photography studio, um, I was asked if I was a Christian. And of course, I went to church and I said yes. And uh, uh, then I was asked, did I did I know how I was going to get to heaven? And I give all the normal answers, if I'm good, if I'm kind, and so forth. And the the man that was talking to me said, that's not the way you must be born again. didn't realize it, but I asked the same question as Nicodemus. How does that happen? So he explained the way of salvation. I went home for my lunch, and those days you went home for your lunch hour, and I went into my bedroom and got on my knees and confessed. I said, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I want you to come into my heart and... uh, be with me forever. And uh, uh, that was the beginning. Then I went back to the studio, and the man was a little bit shocked because he was talking. He said, but we told you you have to be a Christian. I said, I am a Christian. And I told him what happened, and I think he was going to pass out because he never knew it could, could be some so simple, someone just accepting Christ there. And then, and I said, well, what else do I have to do? He said, you have to give your testimony. So he was a lay preacher at that time and was going to Londonderry the next Sunday night, and I went along with him. I said I couldn't get up in front of anybody, but he called me up, and immediately I fainted on the stage of the very famous Guild Hall in Londonderry. And uh, when I came to... um, I sort of breathed a prayer uh, before anybody knew and said, Lord, every time you ask me to do this, if I faint every time, I'm going to do it. So that was how it began. But what was changing the next day, I thought I'd, I'd never be able to speak again. I read, with God, nothing is impossible if you'll only believe. And that set the standard for the rest of my life. I actually believe that scripture, that God could do anything, work any miracle, do anything that needed to be done. And then I learned about prayer, learned about guidance, uh, learned about things like wisdom and knowledge and different things. When you prayed for something, then the Lord showed you the way, what, what actions was responsible on your part. And that that has led to my being involved uh, in dealing with hostages in Beirut, uh, people in prison and the gulags in the Soviet Union. Uh, so that's taken me all over the world, believing when we pray, God not only heard our prayers, but give the wisdom what actions we could take to become a part of the answer. And 
I know, I know that prayer works, and I know that uh, God shows us the way to go. An amazing dimension you're touching on, and so many dimensions, if we're unpacking them. You formed that organization called Friends in the West back in the 1960s, and as you describe securing the release of hostages and imprisoned Christians in the former Soviet Union, that was a tremendous thing that you were doing, because perhaps there were not many people doing that at the time. No, well, at at that time, there was not. But, for example, I had been involved in organizing a Christian Businessmen's Convention in Stockholm, and some teams went out, and one team went to Estonia. That was the Cold War days, and uh, there had been a young lady came from Canada. She was a journalist to cover what was happening, and uh, um, she asked... uh, if she could go with the team that was going to Estonia in the Cold War, and I, she had told me she was an atheist, and um, I thought this, you know, maybe, you know, she just suddenly said, can I go with this team? And I thought, well, uh, don't want to offend her, but uh, I told her what I thought would be safe. I said, if you, they're going tomorrow, if you can get a visa in the Soviet embassy in Stockholm today, you can go thinking she would never get it. And uh, so she went to the uh, she went to the visa department of the Soviet embassy in Moscow, uh, sorry, in Stockholm to get her visa to go. And uh, when she came back, she came back in tears. And I said, what happened? She said, I didn't get the visa. They threw me out and um, I, I just didn't get it. I said, well, why you you're leaning towards uh, your your socialist and and you lean towards all all of those things and she said well she said to be honest with you the reason I wanted to go I lied to you and I lied at the visa uh, department uh, in the, in the Soviet uh, embassy and uh, she said the real reason I didn't tell anybody my grandmother lived there and I wanted to visit her. And I was afraid if I said anything, she would be sent to prison, maybe. And uh, I said, well, I said, here's the thing. You're not a believer, but if you'll allow me to pray, and I take you back down quickly before before the visa section closes for the day, and you get the the visa, would, would that change your opinion? She said, well, it would take a miracle. Well, I said, let's go. I drove her down, stopped outside the door because it was a busy street. That was near closing time and traffic was horrendous. And I was letting her in. She said, wait, wait a minute. I said, well, I got to go park the car, Krista. And I said, you go in. She said, what am I going to say? I said, just start by apologizing uh, for lying to them. And the reason you lied, you're afraid what would happen to your to your uh, to your relative, your grandmother, and uh, let's see where it goes. And by the time I parked the car and was heading towards the uh, the embassy, she came out with her passport high in the air, and uh, she had her visa. And uh, she went along, and uh, uh, the pastor's son and daughter people were lined up all day to hear 
people from the West coming to speak in the what was the registered Baptist church. And in the meantime, the pastor's son and daughter had been praying that they would lead, be led to the most dedicated Christian that they could share some things with, and picked out this young atheist lady and took her, hit her in their car, and took her out into the forest where the real church was meeting. And they gave her a sheath of documents about people that were in prison and leaders and so forth, and uh, uh, they were addressed, Dear Friend in the West. And that's how Friends in the West came about. And uh, that was a life-changing experience, and that led to people getting released in the Soviet Union, uh, very well-known Christians, and uh, families, and some of them I'm still in touch with today, but I believe in the power of prayer. Let's fast forward to 1984, when you brought the very first children's choir from Uganda to Canada and the U.S. I know there's a lot of ground to cover in between uh, friends in the West and freeing people who are hostages and imprisoned Christians in the Soviet Union, but you eventually were well, in Africa. So let's well, not go. really. There was a connection because of my work in the Soviet Union. I'd heard about a church that got arrested, a congregation in Idi Amin's time and sentenced to death. And that's what took me to Uganda. And anyhow, uh, um, they never sentenced to death. Uh, they all became released. But that was the connection with Uganda. And uh, later on, uh, I got a call if I could come back and help. Uh, there was a terrible famine. It was best known in uh um, uh, in Africa at, at, at that time in uh, uh, East Africa, and I went to help there. And uh, um, the in the meantime, I'd written a book, co-authored a book called Uganda Holocaust. So the Prime Minister of the day sent for me, and he said, Ray, we hear you're here with the team and going up north. Uh, could you near you near Kampala here there's thousands of children in trouble and uh it's called the uh, uh um, the triangle the Loire triangle thousands of people are dying could you go there and help and uh i told them you know uh, maybe i maybe i could and you know i was very disparaging of all in the newspaper articles showing starving children and, you know, asking him what happens when the cameras go away. And uh, uh, he said, why? Well, I said, instead of just starving children, I think the world needs to see the, the potential of the African child. Well, he said, that's very well. They have to show the pictures to raise the money. But what would you do? And I just said, uh, uh, I told him a little story of a little boy a couple of years earlier when I was working on the book, The Uganda Holocaust, that my team and I give a ride to from one village to another. His mother said it was his holidays, and the next place we're going, could we drop him off at the aunt's? And I said, to, you know, the little boy, we took him, and uh, uh, I said, can you sing? And he sang uh, to us the whole journey. We recorded in the cassette recorder, and he, 
he sang a little chorus about when I get, as he pronounced it, to heaven, to heaven, you know, what a day that will be. And uh, that kept us going. And I told the prime minister, I said, that's the potential. That's the image the world needs to see of the potential of the African child. And he said, well, what would you do? I said, well, just right off the top of my head, start an African children's choir and take them to sing and show what could happen with these children. And that's, that was the, literally the beginning. And the first choir came out about six or seven months later in September of 1984. And uh, now that's uh, oh, something like 34, 35 years ago. And that was the first choir. And now... So many of those children have grown up. They're doctors, lawyers, teachers. Um, oh my goodness, one one of her children has grown up as one of the leading television anchors in East Africa, in Kenya, uh, Mark Masai. And uh, we've worked with Masai children. In fact, uh, I have the honor of becoming a Masai elder because of the work with Masai children. And to see all these children grown up and they're a credit all over the world. They're leading doctors, teachers, uh, whatever you can mention. And that was the beginning of the African Children's Choir. And I think, you know, from time to time, some of those grown-up children come just uh, before they head to university. And uh, the, the people in Australia has been welcomed them warmly. And we've got a lot of help from Australia. And I'd like take this opportunity to thank the people of Australia for helping so much in Africa. Well, you chose to highlight dignity and hope for African children, and as you say, more than 34, 35 years ago. And at that time, the world wasn't used to seeing African children's choirs. What sort of response did you get when you took them to Canada and the US? Yeah, all over the world, and... uh, uh, we we toured uh, a few years ago with the first choir in in uh, in Australia and uh, yes because now people realize the I, I talked about the the dignity the potential the unlimited ability of the African child and uh, that was before we had one child that's what people would be helping. And I'm very pleased to say it's all come to pass because it it was God's will. I believe that was something that was put in front of us that had to be done. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I see so many things happen where people say it couldn't be done. And that's why the title of the book, Don't Tell Me It Can't Be Done, because I know it can. Through God, anything can be done. Ray Barnett's book is called Don't Tell Me It Can't Be Done. And we're hearing from the founder of the African Children's Choir, back with more in just a few moments. We're talking with Ray Barnett and about his recently released book called Don't Tell Me It Can't Be Done. Ray was the founder of the African Children's Choir. He was also part of the foundation of Friends of the West, which was helping hostages and imprisoned Christians in the former Soviet Union. But when he went to Uganda and the opportunity came to set children into 
a situation where they would be highlighted for their dignity and hope, not just images of starving African children. And Ray, since that time, more than 52,000 vulnerable children have found a pathway out of poverty because of the foundations set in place with your good work. Thank you. Yes, well, we're excited about what can be done, and it's a combination of prayer, seeking God's wisdom, knowing exactly the steps to take, and uh, um, sometimes things are very difficult, but I, I, I never forgot that with God nothing's impossible. And some honours have come your way. You mentioned that you were crowned a Maasai elder in Kenya in honour of your contributions to Maasai children. And now there's a documentary that's being made about your life story. Yes, that's uh, that 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 that's that's right. And uh, um, uh, the the documentary. Um, my my story's out there, and I think there's, uh, um, you know, offers for it to become a documentary. But right now, I'm working on the the tremendous story of the African Children's Choir um, that's, you know, absolutely pure joy, you know, to watch what has happened with these children. And they lead the way today, and actually, most of them are more capable than I will ever be, and and that means that what was set out to be done was to show the potential of the African child. It sure come through through the African Children's Choir. How have you managed the idea of maintaining that Christian-centric culture in the African Children's Choir, that they're singing uh, gospel songs and that their lives are testimony to the good things that God does in the life of a child. How have you maintained that culture? Well, that's a very good question, and it's a very important question because um, uh, mostly when movements get underway through time, they change. But the African Children's Choir is a is a family. Each choir. Uh, becomes a family, and uh, we treat them as a family. We we never allow the word orphan or anything like that to be used, and they're our family. If they're without, everybody is without. And uh, so th- they've grown up with that, that love and hope with the aunties and uncles who travel with each choir every year, and they never lose that contact. So in a way, each each choir becomes a family. And uh, at the heart of it um, is, is the Christian message as to what God can do in the life of a child. And is the African Children's Choir going on from strength to strength today? Uh, as you say, uh, there's families. Are there numerous choirs, or is there just one choir that continues to tour around the world? Well, there's one choir. Of course, it changes every year. A choir, a choir tours, and then they come back and they go to school. And then um, there's the next choir, but it's just the one African children's choir. It's just different editions of the choir. And uh, um, we're very proud of the African children's choir and the 
the work that it does. And uh, I hear some children every day of my life who've grown up through the choir and uh, thanking, a big thank you because their lives have been changed. Well, we mentioned some awards. You were crowned that Maasai Elder in Kenya. You've also received honours and recognition for your work, including the prestigious Cross of Nails Award issued by the Coventry Cathedral in England, as well as the Heart of Gold Award bestowed by Esther Ranson at the BBC. That documentary that may well be on the horizon called Daddy Ray and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing some more about how that documentary is advancing. But right now, to talk about Don't Tell Me It Can't Be Done, your new book, Ray, uh, how do you say people can get a hold of your book? Because you have a website, raybarnett.com. No doubt that's got some uh, insights into where people can get a hold of it. Well, that's the quickest way for me to say because it's coming out in different countries at different times but if they go to raybarnett.com on the details they can even order the book there or they can find out other ways to get the get the book and uh thank you very much for uh helping me tell my story well, Ray Barnett, the author of Don't Tell Me It Can't Be Done, the founder of the African Children's Choir. Ray, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.